Just before Christmas, HICWA, the Health Information and Quality Authority, launched the National Standards for Safer, Better Maternity Services. It makes numerous recommendations and statements about childbirth. Apart from the recommendations themselves, and there are over 400 of them, it's intensified a debate around power and decision-making in childbirth. Who should decide how babies are born? The mother, the obstetrician, or the midwife? In studio, Dr. Maeve Ogan is an obstetrician and gynaecologist at the Rotunda Hospital. Margaret Hanahoe is the Assistant Director of Midwifery in the National Maternity Hospital at Hollis Street. And she's also the founder of Ireland's first community midwifery programme, with whom I had three of my babies. And Cresha Lynch is Chair of AIMS Ireland. That's the Association for Improvements in Our Maternity Services. And she's a member of the HICWA Advisory Committee and the Maternity Strategy Steering Committee. And she writes a blog about home birth called homebirthireland.com. Margaret, I want to start with you, if I may. I was having a look at this standards document and I was struck by one of its introductory statements. It says, for women, giving birth to a healthy baby should be one of the most normal, rewarding and positive life experiences. And I thought right there is where attitudes to childbirth start, that it should be rewarding and positive. And I think with my babies, I had probably the best outcomes you could have. I was in a midwifery-led scheme and I did feel I was listened to and the babies were all born healthy and I pushed them out. But it is a gruelling experience. It's a messy experience. I went into shock after each of them. It's painful. It's scary. Are we raising the bar? Is that the problem that we're doing with childbirth by telling women it should be this beautiful, rewarding experience? I suppose one of the hardest questions to answer is what is normal birth? Normal birth is different to everybody. I mean, it's all to do with your expectation. If you're expecting to have a normal uh, laid back delivery at home or have your baby at home with the midwife and that's what you expect and you end up coming into hospital then it's not normal for you where if you decide that you've decided well I'd like an elective section maybe that's normal for them so it's probably one of the hardest questions in maternity to answer is what is normal I think when you're talking about it being a messy business you know I suppose nobody can expect we don't know what is going to happen and they talk about low risk and now the new term is normal risk I mean people who have normal risk would expect to have a normal delivery or a normal birth or a normal pregnancy but that isn't always the case and sometimes it does get a bit messy but what we're trying to do is have a healthy mommy a healthy baby at the end of it and sometimes it doesn't always work out to be as normal as you would like. So Maeve Ogan, you know, some people will take the attitude, look, you have a live baby and a live mother at the end of the process. That should be enough. That's the standard, irrespective of what method is used to bring that baby into the world. Yeah, and and for some people that is enough. And, you know, frequently we see patients who have what on paper or what for those of us that were involved in it would have been a terribly traumatic experience. You know, just in from home into the emergency room, baby's heartbeat has dropped, emergency caesarean section, perhaps under general anaesthetic. And we think, oh my goodness, this poor woman is going to be devastatingly traumatised for the duration of her baby's babyhood. And, you know, we do a lot of debriefing and discussion. And actually, the mom and dad are sitting there going, look, here's our baby. This is what we want. This is the end game. And then converse, you can have a woman who on paper, we, myself and Margaret and yourself, perhaps looking at what happened to her, you'd sort of think, well, you know, yes, it wasn't 
pleasant, but she's fine. Her baby's fine. And but yet she has found that experience incredibly traumatic. So I think you can't, as Margaret says, you can't sort of say, well, this is normal. This is not abnormal. And everybody's response is going to be the same. So it's up to us in the maternity services to provide discussion platforms for our patients, provide resources where patients who are traumatised after an event that has happened to them to come back, talk to us, meet the midwives, meet the obstetricians, meet the appropriate personnel to help her work through that. Um, And, you know, I suppose obstetric services and midwifery services and maternity services in general have come very, very far. You know, when my mother was having her babies in the 1970s and early 80s, you know, you went in, your friend told you it was just like bad period pain. You had your baby, (laughs) regardless of what happened to you, you were going home, your husband was going back to work, you know, and things were very different and people didn't discuss things that happened to them and things that potentially did traumatise them. And I meet women now in their 60s and 70s coming to me as gynae patients who maybe had something very hard happen to them, you know, lost a baby, had a late miscarriage and, you know, lost a lot of blood, had physically and um, emotionally traumatic experience. And they were never really enabled to talk to anybody about it. And, you know, then when we sort of talk, you know, in taking a gynaecology history, one of the very first questions you ask is, how many children did you have? And they're almost apologetic sometimes and saying, well, I have three, but I had a baby with anencephaly. And, you know, they were never enabled to talk about that. And I would like to think that in the services, and yes, there's so much happening and so many maternity strategies, the HICWA standards, but I'd like to think that these aren't all things that have to be implemented in the future and we'll be good when they're implemented. I'd like to think there is a lot of good there now and there's a lot of positivity. And, you know, so frequently patients say thank you, so frequently Mm. patients acknowledge the good that happened. And yes, it may not have been exactly what they expected. It may not have been pleasant, as you say. It may have been much messier than they thought. But ultimately, they do have a healthy mom. They have a healthy baby. And as, as I say, for many, that's sufficient. And for those that it's not, it's really important that we acknowledge that that doesn't mean they're wrong. It means that we need to tease out what the issues are and help them work through that and help that inform what they're going to do with their next pregnancy. I've noticed on Twitter that a lot of maternity staff from obstetricians down are Mm. uh, getting involved in this meme, we are delivering. Yes. And, you know, they're showing the work that they do and they're working all the time and they're in the ICU unit with the babies that they've saved. And it seemed to me that it was a reaction and that they'd finally run out of patience with the fact that any time maternity has been discussed in the media, it's because there's been a disaster. And that there's constant negativity and constant criticism, you know, that women are being butchered, uh, you know, when they go to have a baby. Is that what drove it? Yeah, it's Is interesting that you've noticed under it. Fire? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's funny because I suppose, you know, if we look at our medical council guidelines or we look at direction that we see about social media, you know, there's always a fear for those people in public sector jobs that, you know, you can't go on to Twitter and talk about your job. And consequently, I suppose obstetricians and midwives and those in maternity services haven't really rebalanced some of the media perception traditionally. You know, yes, you're right. You read about, you know, a case in the paper where a caesarean section was not done fast enough or else there were too many caesarean sections. And there has never really been a response. You know, occasionally maybe one of the masters of the Dublin maternity hospitals will come out and say something or perhaps Michael Turner, who's the head of the clinical programme in obstetrics, will say something, or one of the midwifery professors may something may say something. But actually, those 
on the you know front line meeting patients who've had positive experiences every day hadn't really been saying anything and the totality of the maternity services and the fact that most of the time when I go into work I don't deliver a baby every minute whereas I see patients every minute at various stages in their journey and the aim of that we are delivering hashtag was not just talking about, I mean, colloquially, people may think the delivery refers to the baby being delivered, but it was more the service and the totality from infertility to early pregnancy to women who've experienced sexual violence to the actual moment of childbirth to postnatal care to gynecology care. And I suppose it was an attempt really to rebalance. And it's been so inclusive it's and so engaging. You know, there have been patients very much involved. There have been staff very much involved. And uh, then even a number of my colleagues this week are away at a conference in the US and actually the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology are retweeting some of their tweets with this hashtag. So I think it is good. And it's, it also enables us to provide peer-to-peer support. And one of the trainees said to one of her trainers last week that she was thinking that obstetrics maybe wasn't for her and maybe she'd move to general practice. And actually she said, started following We Are Delivering and I realised, you know, the totality of the service is so much that actually maybe this is the specialty for me. So I think there's a whole range of positives from it. And uh, yeah, I I enjoyed following it. It was nice. Um, Well, Quisha Lynch, so you're chairperson of AIMS, the Association for Improvement in our maternity services, and you're a member of these various steering committees. Just going back to that idea of what our idea of what a normal birth should be and what is a positive outcome. Culturally, what do you think drives that concept of what women feel a normal birth should be you know and is class an influence the internet an influence their mothers this media representation of the idea of women being cut and butchered and disempowered how do we get such different ideas of what a good experience is well I think you can imagine a very large pot and you could put every single statement you've just made yeah. into that. Give myself or Margaret or Maeve a big spoon and stir it around because women's expectations and perceptions of what childbirth is going to be like and what their experience is going to be like is made up of all sorts of cultural issues. It's made up of all sorts of things they've been exposed to, both as children, as, as young women. And I, I can't really say women because it's pregnant people now. It's not always women. It's made up of a, of a whole load of things. But I suppose one of the key issues is information, ensuring that women get information that is evidence-based, that is accurate, that is timely, and that is up-to-date. And that's something that Ames Ireland would be very keen on ensuring women have, that they have also information that's not necessarily biased because it's very difficult to get sort of neutral information. Often, you know, your best friend may have had a certain type of birth, so they want you to have that too. Um, You might meet a healthcare provider who favours a particular type of experience, and they may want you to have that. So it's really trying to negotiate what's good for you. I think some of the the things we've already said can be quite polarised. Birth isn't really polarised. It's a series of, dare I say it, shades of grey. And I think what makes perhaps a, a good birth experience, that's only something that a woman can decide. It's only really afterwards that you reflect and you look back and you see, was that experience good for me? Did I feel okay in that experience? Did I feel supported? That's often what women will ask. So being supported is very important. Was I listened to? 
massively important in our maternity services. And that's one of the things that, things that women will say, is that they haven't necessarily been listened to enough. Did I feel a partner in my care? And that, I think, is crucial, is to feel there isn't... I mean, you mentioned earlier on, you know, power dynamics. It's not really about, you know, someone being in charge. It's about a partnership in which the woman and her care providers, whomsoever they might be at any one moment of time, feel that they're working together. So if a woman feels trust in her care providers and they feel that they're listened to, they really will feel part of a partnership. So then if perhaps as a, a care pathway is suggested and it's something that maybe the woman had thought, well, I, that wasn't really something I was preferring or planning, with the concept of partnership and with the concept of trust, the woman is more accepting of that outcome. And I suppose when we look at birth experiences, when women come out of the other end, in Ireland, we know that our postnatal depression rate is about 17 to 18%. And that would be more marked in women who have a less than optimal birth experience defined by themselves. And as Maeve said, it's impossible for an outsider to say, OK, you had these physical things happen to you, therefore you must have had a poor experience. Mm. As opposed to you had a very straightforward vaginal delivery, you must have had a good experience because it's not like that. Every small little thing, thing that happens in a woman's experience can make a difference. And we do know that women who do have caesareans do have a higher risk of postnatal depression and higher risk of postnatal stress disorder, which is looking more from the psychological into the psychiatric. And that, I feel, certainly is one area that we really need to boost, is our perinatal mental health support. And that's something that the strategy did put forward and that comes out in the standards, is that whilst in Dublin we're quite well served with three perinatal psychiatrists, the rest of the country has nothing. So if a woman finds that she's not feeling well after birth, where is she to go? Where is she to be referred? How is she to heal that, essentially that, birth mm. experience. And if we look at very crude measurements, which was mentioned earlier on, you know, we often look at mortality. We judge the safety of our maternity services, which is what it's all about. It's the safety of our maternity services. We often judge that with how many babies died. I feel as if I should give a trigger warning here to anyone who's mm. pregnant. You know, how many babies died? How many, God forbid, mothers died? And those are our crude measurements, but it's much more complicated than that. There's morbidity, and there was a fabulous study that came out of Trinity earlier on this year, actually, sorry, at the very end of last year, called the MAMI study, which looked at the kind of morbidities, things that happen to you that are not going to kill you, but maybe don't make you feel very well afterwards. So things like incontinence, things like low mood, things like pain from perineal tears and episiotomies. So those things matter to women. And it's not just physical morbidity, it's emotional and mental morbidity. How are you feeling? Women often don't get asked afterwards. You know, they go to their six-week postnatal appointment with their GP, which is free under the maternity and infant scheme. And it's supposed to be a meeting for them and their babies. And usually it's very focused on the baby. And often women are not asked how they feel. They're asked the standard question, have you resumed sexual relations? Which <laughs> makes most women just cross their legs thinking, you've got to be bloody kidding me. So, um, you know, it is important to ask women about their mood. It is important to ask them how they feel so that they can be referred on. And sometimes women won't realise that they don't feel great until several weeks afterwards. And I suppose my take-home message is that it's really all about partnership. And I know you've mentioned the hashtag we are delivering. There's a, a whole new initiative that's been started in Ireland, which was extremely successful in Britain and in the UK called 
the Mat X, the maternity experience. And in that sort of online Twitter, Facebook X, social media environment, it brought together obstetricians, it brought together midwives, it brought together women, it brought together doulas, it brought together everybody. And everybody contributed to look at very small little ways, as, as Maeve has said, you know, you don't need to have a top-down permission to implement the strategy. Everybody can do it. Everybody who works in the maternity services. So looking at small little ways in which you can make things better for women. So that has now started in Ireland. Hashtag Irish Matt Exp. And so far, I think there's about 800 people signed wow. up to it. Wow, I better take a look at that. Do. Um, <laughs> so Margaret Hanahoe, you founded the Community Midwifery um, Scheme in Hollis Street. And I remember feeling strongly at the time when I got pregnant that I wanted to be a part of it because... I don't know. I just felt with midwives, it would be more of a partnership and maybe I'm just too contrary. And I had this idea at the time, most of the obstetricians were men and I didn't want some man talking down to me and telling me he knew best, <laughs> you know, and I'm great. That's me. Maybe it's, it's not them. But I was surprised. Some of my friends would say, but what if something goes wrong? I mean, would the midwives know what to do? Mm. You know, there was this doubt that they had that mm. in your skills, what is midwifery and why have HICWA recommended that our maternity services should be midwifery led? I suppose traditionally in Ireland or traditionally around the world, midwives were the ones who always deliver babies. And I suppose then as pregnancy maybe become more complicated or women were looking for more or women were looking for epidurals, then it had to move into hospital and then obviously doctors were involved and then if pregnancy became more complicated, you had your obstetrician involved. So we ended up kind of nearly trying to paddle backwards. So when we started the scheme in the National Maternity in 2000, which like is 17 years ago, it's hard to believe, like we were almost an uphill battle and it wasn't against, it wasn't obstetricians or midwives that were causing the problem, it was to actually re-educate women all over again. So they all had to be sort of, you know, it is safe to go to a midwife. You don't actually need an obstetrician if you have a low risk pregnancy or what they call now a normal risk pregnancy. But as long as they knew and we were involved with the hospital. So back to what Krisha was saying, you know, there was a partnership within the hospital. So if someone had a difficulty or a problem or a complication, we just referred them to the obstetrician that were seen by them and either they came back to the midwives or they stayed within the hospital service. So it worked out very well. So every woman, though, you don't have to be normal risk or medium risk or high risk even. Every woman should have a midwife involved in their pregnancy. And sometimes I feel sorry for the people who are high risk because they say, oh, well, you know, you have to, you can't see a midwife, you have to see a doctor. Mm. But it's really important that everybody gets some sort of a midwifery input. I was talking to a girl yesterday, she's, um, she's down in the Rotunda and they have started... They have um, a midwife running a previous section clinic, which I think is fantastic because it gives the women the opportunity to talk about what happened to them before and to look forward and see what they're going to do in this pregnancy. Really important that you have a midwife involved in that as well as an obstetrician. Now I can't remember what you asked me. But well, <laughs> see, Jackie Jones wrote a rather controversial column in the Irish Times uh, last week, controversial for obstetrics staff mm. because she was... You know, giving rise, I suppose, to a suspicion that some might, people might have that there's a political war mm. between obstetricians and midwives in the hospitals. What has your experience been of that? There's no, I don't think there's a war. There's no war. And I have to say 17 years ago, there might have been a little battle. 
But luckily enough, and the management that were in place at that time were I think so Declan, supportive. Declan Keane yeah. was very supportive. He was so supportive of it. That, yeah. I mean, any problem there was, he just took it out of our way. So he allowed, not allowed, he gave us the opportunity to flourish. And it actually took off really quickly and went really well. And then as time went on, women realised, and obstetricians and all the other people in the hospital, and even nationally, people realised, wow, this is a really good scheme and this is working out really well. And I think 17 years later, or 16 years later, as it came out last year, this national strategy is now supporting the things that we tried to do 17 yeah. years ago. So if you are normal risk, go to see your midwife. You don't need to see an obstetrician. Obstetricians have lots and lots of things to do when they're looking after people that are higher risk. And there are definitely more higher risk these days. So they have lots of work to do. So, you know, the normal... And do you still think you're educating women? Like Jackie Jones said that in her column, that actually the people that do need to be converted are the mothers themselves. Yeah, I think, though, as time is going on, I think they are becoming more educated and they are reading more. And there's more there's more information out there so that they can read. But, you know, and I suppose, you know, if you're doing antenatal classes or you're getting antenatal education, definitely the information that you get can be biased. There's Mm. no doubt about that. So you have to be able to read left and right so that you can kind of come up with a plan for yourself. And I think if you have a plan for yourself, then it's much easier and can communicate that plan. It's much easier. Well, now, Maeve, planning. Women are always being encouraged these days to have a birth plan and they should plan, you know, what's going to happen. And I remember Roisin, one of the midwives in Hollis Street, uh, saying to me before one of the births, now, have you got any questions? And I said, but there's no point in asking questions. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I have no control over what's going to happen. And she gave me a hug, which is lovely. That's what midwives do. They'll hug you. Um, Obstitutions hug people too. Do they? (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Is it wise to encourage this idea of planning? Because things go wrong and then your plan goes wrong and then you feel like you failed because the plan didn't happen. Is is that one of the problems? I suppose it's one of these six million dollar questions and a little bit like there is, you know, a choice for one person is not going to be the same as a choice for another person. It's the same with birth plans. I mean, I sometimes have patients sitting in front of me looking like rabbits in a headlight going, but I haven't done my birth plan and feeling almost under pressure that, they need to decide what it is they're going to have. And then sometimes, I mean, we can kind of get sometimes into trouble for saying it, but, you know, what I would sometimes say to patients is, you know, I can have a plan and you can have a plan, but really the plan that matters is the baby's plan. And that may sound as if the mother has no autonomy in deciding what happens. That's not what I mean, but we have to be, obstetrics and midwifery is a time of ever-changing, or can be a time of, things changing from minute to minute. Now, and I felt that the maybe the philosophical difference, and maybe it's a subtle one and maybe mm. it was just something I picked up on, was between midwives and obstetricians that the midwives were maybe more patient and willing to sit back and see how things go. Whereas the obstetricians were more cautious and they wanted a more controlled situation and therefore they would be more keen to intervene. And then once you start intervening, intervention breeds intervention and you end up with a country with a 30% cesarean section plan. Do you accept that characterization? I I think there is nothing I like better than seeing an absolutely straightforward labour and birth of a beautiful, healthy baby who we deliver up onto mum's chest and allow the cord to stop pulsating in its own time. Um, You know, dad cuts the cord. There's nobody else, no paediatricians, nobody else in the room 
And that's not, but that's not always the case for everybody. So I suppose we do have to be ready to escalate as a pro- as appropriate. Are and you are you more alert? Are you more keen to intervene? I, than maybe? I think the midwives are just as alert right. to how things can change as obstetricians are. I suppose we we are called when you know we're there. There is always there is one to one. The aim is there's one to one midwifery care for every woman as she labours, and the obstetricians are not sitting there all the time with the patient. Um, so the obstetrician is called in when there may be an issue or a concern or an escalation of clinical care has to happen. So that's that's why we're called in a lot of the time into a situation. Um, but I think we, you know, yes, we're aware of the changes that can happen and the escalation that may be required but it's not that we're wanting to use a forceps constantly or do a cesarean section. Um, and it's a matter of balancing the risks because you're right, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on charging us, obstetrics, midwifery, maternity services, with provision of healthy babies, you know. And nature doesn't always allow things to happen the way nature intended, you know. There's a letter to the Irish Times saying today or last week that Mother Nature is not always as benevolent mm. as we'd like her to be. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't always work out the way nature intended. Mm. Um, and it's important that the services are able to respond to that, but respond appropriately and with education and with awareness so that when it does happen to a patient um, that, you know, the the plan that she may have devised that we go off the plan that at least she understands why that's happening that she doesn't feel overwhelmed she doesn't feel um, I mean obviously we all feel overwhelmed when we deliver our babies but that she doesn't feel that it's you know that that it was outside of her control or that she didn't understand it. Now so Krisha Lynch we have this cesarean section rate of 30% and it, it, one thing that strikes me so much when you're having these conversations is is how easily judged women feel you know so when you talk about sections they're thinking but that's not fair I had a cesarean section and I needed it and there was nothing I could do about it and now you're saying I was wrong to have that and I did something wrong by having a cesarean section and yet 30% by any standard of public health is too high you know the cost alone the cost in the delayed recovery um, you know it is a risky procedure in itself things can go wrong in itself what is your view on the rate? Is it something that we should be trying to get down? Well, I wish our cesarean section rate was 30%. Um, I ha- just happened to have right. <laughs> the rates in front of me well. from October. And um, the rates are given for first-time mums and for second-time mums. Mm. So ideally, uh, you know, if a first-time mum has what's called a normal straight walk forward vaginal birth, then she has a very good chance of having a second. Now, obviously, things can happen with baby number two. The situation is always fluid, as as Maeve has said, but you have a very good chance. So then you're going to appear on your first birth as a statistic as somebody who'd had a normal birth. And then on your second birth, you'll probably, and on your third, if you have a third as well. So I'd often see the first time cesarean rate has been quite critical. So looking at what I have in front of me, Margaret, you can jump up and down there and enjoy. The National Maternity Hospital has the second lowest rate, uh, quite a bit under 30% at 26.1%. The lowest is in Waterford, pip pip to them, at 18.8%. And then the highest in in Kilkenny at 50%. And that's the first time? First time with the Rotunda at 30... 
6.4. I'm only saying the Rotunda because yeah. Mavis here. Yeah. But there's lots of other hospitals with 36, 37, 38. Is that one month, Grisha? Uh, that's the latest. So that is October 2016 for the month, for, month the month, for the month of October. So obviously some months will be higher and some months will be lower. lower. And also the so, denominator is important, the number of births the number. in oh, Kilkenny yes. would be small. So yes, it's 50%. Yeah, but fifty percent of a small number. Yeah, um, wa- wa- and yet Water- if- Waterford, Waterford is also small, as in Port Leisha, where there's yeah. only thirty-one percent. So, yeah. you know, you have a series of units that are quite big tertiary referral units, such as uh, Hollis Street, such as the Rotunda, such as um, the Coombe, and those hospitals you'd expect to have a slightly higher rate because they are dealing with the very high-risk cases. So, is that a bad thing? Well, um, is it a bad thing? I think it is. A not great thing. I don't think, um, you know, we can aspire to allowing our cesarean section rate to keep rising and rising and rising and rising because, you know, the the World Health Organization has a very, very low rate suggested and um, above which it's suggesting that there are too many cesarean sections performed. Um, But then the line in Ireland has always been certainly from the obstetric point of view, has always been that, well, lots of OCD countries have So what's rates. driving it, in your opinion? Well, I think it's multifaceted. I don't think it's just one thing that's driving it. You know, high induction rates can drive it. Mm. That's one thing. Um, secondly, litigation can drive it. Uh, we have a culture in which if there's anything wrong with the baby, then the only redress that parents have is to go to court. And that makes care providers... Air on the conservative side. And, and an then, obstetrician said to me once and begged me not to quote him that a major factor was that I said to him, hey, Norway has a cesarean section mm-hmm. rate of 5%. And he said, you give me a hospital full of Norwegian women, I'll give you a cesarean section rate of 5%. I have unhealthy Irish mothers who are maybe too young, in some cases in deprived areas, malnutrition. I have other mothers who are obese and can't do it. We've got binge drinking, smoking, much older mothers who are automatically high risk. So do you give me healthy Norwegian mothers? I'll okay, lower I, your I, I just, the reason that I'm sort of shaking my head a little yeah. bit is that I don't really like, there are factors in there that are true. We have higher obesity, that is true. And we have other things. But I don't like the idea that somehow it's the woman's fault. You know, I mean, perhaps if women had better care earlier on in their lives, perhaps if they had better health care awareness, perhaps if they had more uh, awareness about pregnancy and obesity in school, you know, that then maybe their lifestyles would be slightly different. But I'd also say that it's the variation across the hospitals. And we have a lot of small units who have less than 2,000 births. So it's the variation across those units in terms of cesarean section rate that makes people wonder why the variation Margaret, why the variation, do you think? I know you're only working in Hollis Street, but I'm sure this is well studied. Yeah, it's interesting. And and I mean, that is the question because, I mean, there's not a whole lot of Norwegian women in the National Maternity (laughs) Hospital and different women in Kilkenny. And that is the question. Why is the variation? And I don't know the answer to that. Well, presumably it's because um, labour management practices are different. Yeah, So some, You know, there's different practice. So... Mm. Um, as far as you were aware, is anybody in the HSC or in HICWA going down to Kilkenny or sending someone from Hollis Street to Kilkenny and saying, you're going to have to do things differently? Not that I'm aware of. 
I'm well, not that I mean, yeah. Just one thing about Appreciate. Kilkenny. I don't want Kilkenny to come off as yeah. a scapegoat in this yeah. because, for example, uh, Kilkenny also had a very high rate of uh, major obstetric hemorrhage and they were very, very transparent about that. Mm. And they went back and they reviewed all of their practices and then they came back with a whole series of new drills and new approaches showing how they would definitely be able to lower that rate and they did. So I think it would be just great if they could do a similar thing with looking at the cesarean section rates, mm. which have been much higher than anybody else since 2012. Well, then go back, um, Margaret, then to the, the first question I put to Krisha. I mean, is it a bad thing? You know, should there be some national strategy here of saying this is too high and it's too high from a public health and a public health management perspective. And I'm sorry if you feel judged, but we need to figure this out. So I have to say the jury's out for me because, right. I, I mean, I would feel that um, women should have choice. And I know Cretia also yeah. agrees that women should have choice. So is it right that a woman can say, yeah, look, I just want to have a cesarean section. I don't want to do all this messy stuff. You know, yeah. just give me a section. Is that right? Personally, I don't think it is because I don't think they realise the knock-on effect. And I always remember an obstetrician who also said, don't quote me. You know, <laughs> you're, not, you're not going to turn around to um, a pilot and say, look, I want to take this flight path. You know, he, he knows what he's doing. So give us the opportunity to give you the best birth we can give you without turning around and looking for an elective section. I think the knock-on effect, as Krisha said earlier, if you have a vaginal delivery the first time, they just fall into place. Yeah. If you can get the first baby out, you're laughing. Yeah. Where if you end up having a cesarean section, it gets trickier and trickier the more babies you have. When you start in number two, good chance you're going to have a section. Number three, you're definitely having a cesarean section. And then you're running into difficulty because the chances of you having a bleed are much higher. The chances of you having a problem with your placenta are so much higher. And I think the knock-on effect of, of cesarean section is significant. And that's probably where it does make a difference. Um, Maeve actually no I'm going to ask Maeve about can I just make one yes, comment do you just said is anybody looking at these figures yeah. you know are they just being and there is a lot of people looking at these figures right. what, what um, you know there, there are the maternity statistics that are gathered every month I'm not sure if that's where Krisha has, has that data from um, and also the National Perinatal Epidemiology Centre mm-hmm. looking at various metrics for out, outcomes and looking to see as Krisha mentioned postpartum hemorrhage rates can they be can they be altered changed adjusted managed. Um, so there are a lot of people looking at this and I think what we want to reduce is unnecessary cesarean mm. sections. Yeah, and but if there's a think, famous phrase in yeah. business, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> so you can have all the steering committees in the world who are mm-hmm. saying we will implement this strategy and we'll yeah. get the cesarean section down and it doesn't make any difference if you have doctors in hospital with anxious mothers and the obstetrician wants to avoid an out-of-control situation and everybody just feels it's safer at the end of the day to yeah. have a section and don't judge me. You know, what can a strategy do in the face of that? Well, I think what you do is you do you do education and you do support and you don't have unnecessary cesarean sections. But as Margaret says, if a woman comes in whose sister had a horrific experience mm. in terms of a vaginal delivery and the woman doesn't matter what she hears, how many antenatal classes she goes to, she wants an elective cesarean section. She is 39. She's only having two children. Arguably for her individually, her risks mm are not greater by having two cesarean sections. Okay, I'll describe to you a scenario when I was pregnant with my first uh, baby and naturally enough it went overdue. I think first ones often do. And it came to the 10 days and I was sent off for the scan. And 
you know, the registrar who was on duty at the time was, right, well, you're 10 days overdue, you should be induced. And I really didn't want to be induced because I knew once you were induced, you were walking down a pathway towards a section because sometimes they don't work. And if I had the first baby a section, then the others would be sections. So I was one of these over-informed, arrogant, irritating patients who was able to say, is there sufficient amniotic fluid? Is the heartbeat, you know, still strong? I can tell you the movements are regular. Is there any sign of placental aging? And in other words, the only indication for induction was dates. And I knew the dates were wrong, actually. Mm -hmm. So I had to be very assertive and say no. Mm -hmm. And actually, even afterwards, even when it worked out, sometimes I look back and think, you know, if that had gone wrong, that would have been on me. And was I the right thing? So... I think most other women would have said, oh, the doctor said I should have an induction. So you can say that there's choice and you can say that there's information. But if the culture is, well, you're over time, so you really need to have an induction. And who's going to disobey the doctor? And then they get their induction. Then it doesn't work. And then the baby's in distress. And then you have your section and that's it. You end up with three sections. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but that's why discussion, back and forth discussion is important because... In your situation, you didn't want to listen to the doctor. You were informed. You wanted to do what you wanted to do. You had that discussion. You were facilitated in doing yeah. that because it was appropriate for you given the set think, of circumstances. I think most women wouldn't have. I think most no, women would have deferred. I think no? no, we have a huge amount of discussion all the time. It's very infrequent that somebody would say to someone, you need to be induced. End of story. No more talking. That yeah. doesn't happen, you know. Yeah, but what does happen is, Cretia, and I hear this, and do you know the other place I hear it is, the doctor said the baby's very big. You know, and this yeah. starts at 28 weeks, and I'm looking at them, well, babies grow in spurts. It might be big now, but that doesn't mean it's going to be big at 38 weeks. And it's like they're being primed early on. Oh, it's going to be a big baby. You're not going to be able to do this. It might just be better just to start thinking. You know, and it drives me mad. And then the other thing, oh, but the doctor said. And I've seen professional, educated women going, oh, but the doctor said. Because I'm contrarian. <laughs> I agree. I don't know. It's this deference when maybe it's not strictly necessary. Or is that a dangerous attitude? And you know what? The doctor knows best. Do what you're told. Well, I think you need a happy medium in between. Yeah. I think you need discussion. And just going back to what you said before about birth plans, yeah. um, I would always I prefer the word preference, birth preference. And I wouldn't necessarily see it as a de facto statement of fact as to how everything was going to progress. You have to bear in mind that most women in going through our maternity services will not have what's called continuity of care. So they won't see the same person all the way through. So they might only get a 10-minute booking visit, of which five minutes will be spent of them telling their story all over again and, and saying everything that they probably said last visit. So they have a very short time period in which to, to talk through somebody antenatally and then they usually find to their horror that that person isn't going to be there when they have their baby so you know if women could realize that that you're not going to have continuity of care all the way through uh, that can be helpful so putting birth preferences down indicates to usually the midwife that you're going to meet in the labor ward that this is me hello I'm going to have my baby today, hopefully. <laughs> and this is my uh, partner, if you have a partner. And these are things that are really important to us. These are things that I'd like to have. Uh, this is where I'd like you to give me your support. Um, or alternatively, I 
really need pain well, medication. I, think, I want you to organise that. I think that's why so many women go private because they think that would be a key part of what they'll get, that there will be one person that will be well, in Well, I think that that's something that's kind of changed post-recession. I, I know when I first had my first child, it was everybody discussed who's your private consultant, who's yeah. your consultant, see the new shoes, who's the consultant. It was all part of that package, you know. And I was shocked because I came from the UK where you only ever saw an obstetrician if there was really serious stuff going on. Yeah. And then schemes like the Domino Scheme in Hollow Street came out. And that scheme has been so, I cannot reiterate how well received that scheme is. We get nothing but good comments about that scheme. Women rave about that scheme. Yeah. Every time we do, I mean, the last survey we did had 3,000 respondents. Uh, the maternity strategy did uh, a consultation with 1,400 respons- respondents. And everybody raves about that scheme. And then I think that scheme, in a way, enabled people to see that, well, actually, you could get a really good experience and you didn't have to go private. Yeah. So then people started to think a little bit more about continuity of care in, in, in different models. Yeah, and I, you know, I did it. And the idea is that you meet all the midwives so that it doesn't matter who happens to be on duty on the, when you give birth you know, that you actually know who they are. So I'm a huge fan of that. But look, we're, we're running out of time, I'm afraid. And Margaret, one thing I wanted to bring up as well is regional disparity. Mm. I was shocked to learn that 20-week scans simply aren't available mm. in vast numbers of hospitals outside Dublin. That seems to me extraordinary and medically risky. Mm. The variation is, is massive. And I think that's probably where the national strategy is trying to make it a little bit a little bit of equality because I mean that what they're suggesting now is that there is a, either a standalone or a st- alongside or even a room within the labour ward where people can have midwifery led care that's what they're suggesting so at least it's going to make a little bit more from a midwifery point of view it'll make a little bit more um, equitable around the country but as far as the scans is concerned it seems to be a resource issue I was I was kind of giggling to myself I was reading through the eight themes within the the, um, the standards yeah. and one of them was resources that you use your resources within your available resources I'm thinking <laughs> you know how are you meant to do that I mean you, you mm. use what you've got with the best of your ability but if you don't have the resources to do it and that seems to be what the story is with the scanning that there just isn't enough people and enough resources to to carry it out Or it ties Maeve. in with the governance piece and you know there has been a lot of talk about that over recent Explain weeks. Explain that, this okay, mastership so, well, model. Yeah, and I think because of the term master, yes. people think it's, <laughs> there's a sort of a, an old-fashioned old mm-hmm. perception that that means man and you will have an induction or you will have a scan or you will have a cesarean section. That's not what it means. A master is a clinical CEO who has clinical and executive responsibility within the hospitals. And the reason that the three Dublin maternity hospitals offer every single patient who attends them for maternity care an anatomy scan is because the masters and the governance model has enabled use of the financial resources in that way. The further the patient is from the person who has control over the financial resources, the harder it's going to be for those financial resources. So, to what be. is the resistance outside Dublin to the mastership model? The resistance is the fact that the hospitals, other than the standalone maternity hospitals, are integrated within um, general hospitals, and the governance is lying with the general hospital rather than the maternity. They're a department. Yeah. The obstetrics and gynaecology unit is a department of the hospital. Right. And I'll put my final question to you. 
you know, I think it is clear that maternity services have been extraordinarily under-resourced. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I have been in Hollis Street where they're pushing up yeah. the beds in the middle of the night to squeeze people in because there's no waiting list when you're having a baby. <laughs> they're coming in irrespective. And I think of that joke is that if men got pregnant, childbirth would be a sacrament. You know, do you think there has been some kind of politically driven under-resourcing of all of this? Well, It's very clear that with the National Maternity Strategy and with these standards, what needs to come with them is a package of resources that enables implementation. Mm. And we have to aspire that that package is going to come. Implementation is going to occur. Things are going to be more equitable for every single pregnant woman in this country. Mm. But we also have to remember that around the world, Every single day, 800 women die in childbirth. Yes. And we don't want to be fearful. We don't want to negate the good stuff that is happening. But it's really, really important that we realise that there have been huge strides made in maternal and perinatal mortality. And yes, we want to give everybody a wonderful experience. But we shouldn't say that what we're doing is not right because what we're doing is also safe. I'm so glad you said that. I think we often lose sight of it. We are very fortunate to live in the times that we do. And I might just leave it at that. So look, that is it for today. Many thanks to my guest, Stephen Jordan produced, Aidan McKelvey researched, and thank you for listening.